back just a little bit in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, Paul is addressing the community of faith. He is going to later tell us that he is, his purpose for writing. As a good thesis writer, if you're a good English person, if you have gone to college or even high school or any of those sorts of things, you've had to learn how to write a good thesis statement. And Paul is going to tell us, and we're going to preach this, I'm not going to preach it today, but he's going to tell us why he is writing. And that is that, that we would learn how to know, that we would learn how to live in the household of God. And so in, in doing so, he, he jumps out in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, um, expressing and declaring to Timothy a way in which he and others within the church body, if they are to be centered in the gospel, that they should live in these ways. And, and from the get-go, because of the gospel, the first step from the gospel and through the gospel is for us to be a praying church. And so over the last several weeks, we've been talking a lot about praying, about praying for all kinds of people. We've been talking about um, the importance of prayer, the why of prayer, and that why is, is because God is going to save all kinds of people. But I want you to know that we're taking in this idea of all prayer a turn um, in looking specifically into men and women and the importance of a prayer life and a godly life for men and women. And uh, I want you to know that if there is anything that is going to be said in Mission Church in such a time as this, it is going to be done so over the next few weeks. There are some major countercultural ideas as we're going to be pressing against the current of this world that if you do not feel uncomfortable in some moments here, uh, then you are probably asleep, um, dead, all right, or just not paying any attention whatsoever. Um, I felt extremely uncomfortable even in this week in preparation for our gathering this morning, but would pray that God would speak into our uncomfortableness, um, that we would understand that that is sometimes important, and yet this table the table of the gospel, the table of Jesus Christ, is what, as we learned last week, is for all. All. That God is going to save all kinds of people, all types of people, from all different types of sin. And that God is going to speak directly into some of those issues we prayerfully believe here today. And so in verse 8, one verse today, something I'm trying to do differently is uh, to decrease the amount of scripture that we're using in hopes that I can decrease the amount of talking that I do. If I'm limited on the number of verses, that makes me limited on the time to speak. And so we're going to look at verse 8 only today, where it says, as Laura read for us, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, what's interesting about this is, is, ladies, do not fall asleep on me today. But I'm going to have to contextually speak primarily, secondarily to the ladies, but primarily today is going to be driven toward the men of our church. And so I ask you, ladies, that you would consider these truths even for you, but also to pray for the men of our church. As manhood is under attack um, by our culture, 
And we're going to speak into some of those things um, here today as I direct this sermon primarily toward our men. And the reason why I do that is because that's what Paul does. In the literal language here, in the literal Greek, he speaks directly into men and into their lives, and he's going to speak directly into ladies. Ladies, next week we get to talk about such a thing as modesty. Prayerfully, we don't have to talk to any dudes about modesty. All right? So you get what we're flowing here with. Not that there aren't cases where there aren't going to be ladies who struggle with what we're going to talk about today. Not that there aren't cases, I guess, with men and modesty. All right? But overarching speaking, these are going to be issues this week dealing directly with men. And next week, uh, dealing directly with women. All right? So we learn here the very first thing is that I desire that in every place that men should pray. Now this every place is, is primarily talking about whenever the church is gathering, there is a directive toward men to pray, okay? I, I, I do not fall in the camp that believes that this necessarily means that a woman can never pray and that she should never pray within our gatherings, but I would fall in the camp that this is primarily led by men. You'll notice that our elders a lot of times will lead the prayer, praying here um, at our gatherings. Um, but that in, in doing so, that we see the initiative toward prayer and being a people of prayer, that that is led by the men of the church. We don't do that simply because we want to be male chauvinist pigs and that we want to be in control. We do that because this is what the scripture tells us to do. And there's nothing awkward than being in an MC with a bunch of dudes standing around being passive whenever you say, who wants to pray over the meal? Right? And we all stand there and look at each other. And then typically a female, because she hates passivity, which she should, steps up and says, what? I'll do it. And Paul, that's a problem. Okay? It's a problem with the way in which God has ordained some things. Again, not that a woman can't pray and not that a woman does, that God doesn't hear a woman's prayers. We see in the Bible women praying and God hearing them. Let us not forget of Hannah's prayer, all right? Let's not forget of these beautiful Marys, you know, her song of praise and of prayer to God when she finds out that she is going to conceive the Messiah, give birth to the Messiah, all right? So it's not a downplay on women, it's a lifting of the bar for men. Does that make sense? So we're to pray men everywhere, but specifically there is a posture of prayer. There are two postures of prayer, spe speaking directly into this passage. There are others inside the scripture. We see on bended knee, we see people laying out before God, um, these sorts of things. We see David dancing, praying in his whitey tidies. I mean, all these sorts of things. Don't do that on a Sunday morning or just do it at home by yourself, okay? But we see specifically in this passage that there are two postures of prayer. Maybe you'll only see one, but that's why reading the Bible and understanding the scripture is very important. The first posture of prayer that we see is that men should pray with holy hands lifted. That we should be praying, men, with our hands physically lifted. This is what we see inside the scripture. 
Inside the Old Testament, such as in 1 Kings 8.22, in Psalm 28.2, specifically Psalm 63.4 says this, well, I will bless you as long as I live. Your name I will lift up my hands. Okay? That this isn't some charismatic, I promise you are not going to bark like a dog, flight block like a fish, run around the church building while we sing praise and worship if you lift your hand in worship. It is a biblical posture, physical posture of humility and surrendering yourself to God. It is a common practice. Gentlemen, do you want to be like Jesus? One of the last things that we see Jesus doing before he ascends to the heavens, Luke tells us is this, and he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Okay? Now, I don't I don't want us to become legalistic about it, all right? It's actually between you and the Lord, but he tells us to do it. And I don't care if you carry the TV or do the touchdown or whatever it is, that form of which you want to do, okay? But we're called by God a picture of Christ, a picture inside the Old Testament, a common practice is to lift your hands in prayer and surrender to God. So that's the first posture that we see, okay? The Pentecostals, I promise you, did not invent it. It's a biblical picture, all right? Now that is a physical posture, but it is not the primary posture. The most important posture that we see here is not reflective merely in our physical hands being lifted, but it's more on this context of the subject of what it means to have holy hands, all right? Holy hands, holy hands lifted. Let's go back to the text. I desire then that at every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Holy hands. More important, ladies and gentlemen, than the physical act of us lifting our hands in prayer was the deeper meaning behind this imperative. The primary meaning behind this image of men lifting their holy hands was an attitude for the men in the church to lead the worship of the church with a life that was marked by holiness. God is not worshipped, gentlemen. God is not worshipped by man simply because he has the ability to, to, to lift his hands at the bridge of a praise chorus. He's not worship merely because we can mumble a few words, read some theology books, and yet the fruit of the Spirit is not evident in our lives on Monday or at his job or in his marriage or, or parenting or driving up and down Scottsville Road or when he is alone. The idea of praying with holy hands lifted is, yes, there is a physical component to it, but even more so, there is an underlying spiritual attitude that should be found within the men of the church that they are holy, holy men. It's the picture of what we see inside of Scripture, all of the ritual bathing, right? Give us clean hands. Give us what? What's the second line to that? Pure hearts. That's the connection that Paul is making here, okay? And though we, in, in Christianity, we have some symbolisms, don't we? Like baptism. 
Baptism is not a bath, but it is a symbolic ritual showing of the cleansing of what Jesus has done on the outside is visible. There's no actual actual cleaning that is taking place, but it, it, what it represents. And Paul is coming to these men at Ephesus who are at war with each other. And he's saying to them, gentlemen, you need to be holy, holy, holy men. And that this should be transparent and evident in our lives well before we ever come to the Sunday morning gathering. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15 through 16, listen to this, this kind of eerie scripture with God speaking to these men. He says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. See, there's the connection. They were praying, they were doing all of this religious activity, all of this this church stuff, and God is looking at their practices as they are praying to him, and yet he's making a connection that they are evil men pretending to be righteous followers of God. And what the real picture is, is that it's left blood on their hands. And he's telling them to do what? To repent. Before coming and and orchestrating and doing all of this religious activity, he's saying, man, there's got to be a cleansing of your heart. There's got to be a repenting nature within these men's hearts if he is expecting them to hear his prayers. So he tells them, man, let's put it this way. There's a direct connection between a man's life, his heart, and his prayer life. All right? What does it mean to be a holy man? It means to be set apart. That his character and his nature is, is reflective of his union with Christ. A holy man is what? He's a saved man. He's a humble man. He's a repentant man. He's an imitator of Jesus. And God is calling men to be holy in their lives. And that's what he wants for them. That's what he wants for us. See, brothers and sisters, it is possible for you and I to have religious affections. You need to hear this. It is possible for a man or a woman to have religious affections without a relationship with Jesus. Did you know that you can love to read the Bible and know it backwards and forwards and not know Jesus? You can love only Christian music. You can love attending church. You can love the community and the the social aspects of what it means to be around Christians, that you can have religious affections and yet be lost. Is this not the picture that we see of of Judas and Jesus? And I don't know about you, but every time I I, I peer into Judas' life, or whenever it mentions the disciples went and did this, how quickly we'll forget that Judas was a part of those men. That he was always around Jesus. 
that he was preaching, that he was calling people to repentance, that if he had the ability, he was casting out demons, that all the things that Jesus commissioned the disciples to do, Judas was among them. He had religious affections, but he did not have a relationship with Jesus. He can be a religious Christian fanatic and yet be lost. Man, what a picture. What a scary mentality. Justin and I, and I've joked for now years, that the, the scariest passage in Scripture is where Jesus says, but I never knew you, right? And they're like, but, but Lord, I look at what I did. Look at what I, I did this, and that we did this, and we did this, and we did this, and we did this. I did this, I did this, I did this. Sorry. I did not know you. Scariest passage in Scripture. Is that in James 4 7 through 10? If you fill this in in your Behold Your God study with our, our missional communities this week, this passage stood out to me in regards to looking at this, this sermon. In James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, it says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So, yes, there is a physical act of us praying as men. But gentlemen, raising your hands in worship while having an unrepentant heart is contradictory to the life in which God has called you and I to live. They should line up. They, they should match. So in many ways, Paul here, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is, is asking us to, to peer past the physical hands into the attitude of the worshiper, into the attitude and the heart attitude and the heart affection. See, most of us in this room, ladies, you can testify to this, but I would encourage you not to say amen right here. Most men in this room are prone to three major attitudes of unholiness. The first one is passivity. Paul doesn't mention it here. We see it throughout the scripture, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, with Adam, who is being passive toward his wife as she commits spiritual suicide. He was supposed to protect her, but he does not. He is passive. Women hate passivity. They hate passive men. It's hard to respect a passive man. Okay? But Paul is going to jump into the other two. The other two is... Anger and division. Anger and division. Now, what Scripture is saying here is that there's never a time to be angry. There is a time to be angry, ladies and gentlemen. All right? There is a time to be angry. There is also a time to divide. We see both of these illustrated inside of the Scripture. But most men in our culture are not marked by the holy expressions of these attitudes, but rather anger and division birthed out of unrepentant sin. So let's look at the first one. Gentlemen, brothers, I love you. 
unholiness, an unholy attitude in many of us is anger. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but we live in a very angry culture. A very angry culture. Many of us, including myself, deal with inward that sometimes expresses itself outwardly angry or in anger. See, a man's public displays of worship are only as real as his life is marked by holiness. When I used to serve in a different church, not this one, but in a different church, it was always interesting to know about marriages within our congregation. Knowing and seeing men with their hands raised, only to go home that night and raise their hands at their wives, wife. Worshiping Jesus, hands raised, singing, praying, amening the preacher only to go home to beat their wives. Do you see the disconnect here? That this is an issue, that this is a problem, this is an inward attitude with, within these men. And I, I know that not everyone in here pays attention to what's happening inside of American Christianity, but what's really grieving toward me as a pastor is the number of pastors in recent years that we have not just lost due to sexual promiscuity inside of their lives, but is the number of pastors whom we have lost of big and small churches because of a bullying, angry, mean mentality. We just lost one last week. 12,000 members at his church. 30 years he planted this church 30 years ago. And he lost his job, not because of an adulterous affair, but because within even the church, angry, bullying, mean, mentality, domineering, control freak, unrepentant, always got to be right mentality caused him to lose his job, and rightfully so. But these are known cases. How many homes and how many churches are these things taking place within these places and in, in these entities, and yet they are not known? God has called us, brothers, to be better. He's called us like he did in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 through 27. Therefore, having put away any falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Colossians 3.8 But now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. James 1.19-20 Know this, my, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Do you see that connection? The way in which a man lives in his private life, his attitudes, his heart's affections, and how they are played out with other people, specifically if he is married with his wife and children, and that direct connection to his prayer life and whether or not God is paying any attention to him. The second attitude would be one of division, one of quarreling. Three unholy attitudes that most of us men struggle with, one of passivity, one of anger, and one of division. Now, I want us to understand something here. By nature, by nature, if you are male in this room, by nature, most of the men in this room like a good fight. We like a good fight. And you need to understand that this is something that God has placed into maleness as the image bearers of God. That men enjoy a fight. Think about it when you were little boys. Nerf guns, swords, rock'em sock'em robots. We love a good fight. And that doesn't mean that we all want to be the person in the fight. But we love a good fight. We love to compete and in and of itself isn't, isn't sinful. But it can become that for sure. Man, we, we love to watch a good fight. We, we love things like hand-to-hand combat and sports and big hits on the quarterbacks and, and YouTube videos of backyard brawls and, and MMA. And even NASCAR is really 80,000 people watching grown men drive left for three hours as they pray for a wreck. How do you know if it's a good race? My aunt and people, they got in this big... Dale Earnhardt Jr., woo And And, and let's, let's, let's face it, no one really likes hockey. You know what we like? We like the, the idea of, of the potential of two men wearing pads with razor blades on their feet, carrying sticks while standing on ice, getting into a fight. That's how you know you like hockey, is you're just praying for a fight. If you, even if you're not into sports. I always get these guys, and they're like, well, I don't like sports. But you will see grown men collect figurines to play risk, a souped-up version of risk against each other. Most of the video games, what are they? Their fights, from Fortnite to Call of Duty, whatever it is, to Mario. And if you've never wanted to throw something at a Tetris screen playing regular Nintendo, then you have not lived. There is something within us that we love action. We love action movies. We love, again, combat. 
bat. We love outwitting, outplaying, outlasting, all these sorts of things. Men by nature are fighters. And this is a blessing when used by God. This is a good thing. However, it is definitely impending doom in the hands of sin. This fighting, divisiveness, and quarreling in the hands of an unholy man leads to many problems, not only in his home, but also in his church. Brothers, many of us in this room struggle with wanting to be right. We will argue about the dumbest of facts. We desperately want to be right. But brothers, I want to call you and call myself to something is that God has not called you to be right. He has called you to be righteous. And that righteousness can only be found in a person that is in union with Jesus. He has not called us to be ambassadors of division, but he has called us to be ambassadors of what? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. Brothers, we can get so nitpicky about things that don't matter. We can get so frustrated, which is another way, a manly way of saying angry, about things that just do not matter. We're constantly jockeying for position, trying to one-up each other. We have, many of us, relationships either with our dads or with friends of which we no longer speak to or no longer close to, even if it happened to us years in the past. Because we want to be right. Because we generally have a spirit, an attitude, an affection toward divisiveness. And yet, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 through 24, it says, So if you're offering your, your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Be reconcil- First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Do you see the, the taking the initiative of reconciliation? Brothers, we should be the first ones in our marriage to declare these things. I am sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. All right? And even if you're not wrong, you say, I am sorry. Please forgive me. Because your pursuit is to bring sanctuary to that home, to bring sanctuary to that church. We see here in this picture that it is not just merely dealing with this attitude of the home life, but it is dealing within the confines of the church. If you have an offering to bring here later on, when we take our offerings, man, you, you, you lay down the offering, but then you, you get this picture of you run to your brother or your sister to make it right. It's not worth it at the end of it all. It's not worth whatever grudge you are holding on to, whatever grievance you are holding on to. The Lord says, do what is first. What? Make it right. Be reconciled to your brother. We often use this statement, and we need to relearn it. Are you more involved in winning the argument 
or winning the person? Do you want to win the argument or do you want to win the person? We see Jesus doing this over and over and over again. I'm not saying that there's never a time that it's not a time to pick up a whip because we see Jesus doing that. There, there is a time when you're to speak very sternly. There, there is even a time when you're probably supposed to raise your voice at the oppression of others. But let's, let's, if we really peer into the New Testament, though, those were not consistent in God's and Jesus' character and action. He did not pack a whip with him everywhere he went. He used it rightly in a moment. And then he put it down. He stood up for what was right in the moment. We don't get this picture of Jesus just yelling. It's, I'm so glad that Jesus isn't walking around saying to everyone, You brood of vipers! You make them twice the sons of hell that, that, that you are. Did Jesus say that? Yes. But he also was walking through a crowd being swarmed and huddled by a group of people, being touched all over the place, and he's able to say, who touched me? And to find a little lady sick who's had an issue of blood for many years, the Bible has told us who is untouchable, and she believed in the prophets of old who said, By, in the wings of the Messiah's garment you will find healing. And she believed that if she could just touch the hem of Jesus' garment. This is the same Jesus that the kids at the church meeting were causing a fuss, and the disciples are trying to, you know, that's what we, this is the parent. If you haven't learned that, new parents, you gotta, you gotta learn that one. Shoo, 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 right? Who says, mm-mm, mm-mm. Unless you're like one of these. Right? But there are men who are, are marked by the opposite. We see in the Gospels that God is in the flesh. He's, he's the very one who has made all of creation, the one who knows all and is all. He has the, the power and the right to erase all of humanity from the planet. But he is born of a virgin, laid in a mare, manger, lives a poor working man's life, and then is marked with compassion and patience. Even as Jesus is standing before Pilate, what does Pilate do? Oh, I, I can't find nothing wrong with this, brother. Like, <laughs> ain't nothing wrong with this, brother. He, he hadn't done anything wrong. I'm, wash, I'm washing my hands of this. Jesus had every right to defend himself in that moment. He could have called down legions upon legions of angels in that moment to rescue him. And yet that is not what Jesus does. In Titus chapter 3, verse 10 through 11, it says this. Paul is writing to a young man named Titus, similarly to as he is writing to Timothy. And he says in Titus chapter 3, verse 10 through 11, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. What do we get here? 
this picture of church discipline. The picture of, of warning people and warning people and warning people. And you take this passage and the other church discipline passages, what is the importance of church discipline? It is not so that we can rejoice and celebrate that a brother or sister is being excommunicated from the church. What is the point in it? That they will realize their lostness. And that the grief in their departure does not compare to the killing of the fatted calf in their repentant return. So even if there is division, what's the point? Reconciliation. Men and ladies, as one of your pastors, I want to warn you as well from embracing the cultural idea of toxic masculinity. It's a hot-button phrase right now that is obviously being used from news to commercials about what it means to be a man. The problem is not toxic masculinity. The problem is sinful, toxic men. The problem is the hearts of men. Being masculine can be a good thing. All right? Every man in this room should know how to throw a punch. Now, I'm not saying you should walk around looking to get into a fight. But if we're walking in an alley somewhere and somebody grabs up my wife, they have met the wrong man. Because you may get me, but I want you to know I will not fight fair in that moment. I'm going to bite you, pinch you, I'm going to pull your hair, I'm going to do whatever it takes to protect my lady. And the thing is, ladies, don't, don't you want that? The role of a man is, is to be protector. You are the weaker vessel, not because you are less intelligent. It has nothing to do with your intelligence. It has nothing to do with your actually intellectual, emotional ability. But God is simply, in his casting of position and role, has made you even have less muscle mass. You are weaker in strength to most men. Why? Because it's a man's responsibility as a man to protect you. Do you need a man? No, you need Jesus. But a grace of Jesus is a godly man in your life. You don't need a man. You need Jesus. But if Jesus has given you a man, then that man needs to be a godly man. He needs to be a godly, holy man. This is what we see. This is, and this is what we need is for holy men, not jerks, not, not men who are abusive, emotionally, physically, sexually. We don't, that's not a holy man. A holy man is a godly man, a repentant man. 
This is what God is calling us to within the church, gentlemen. My brothers, as we struggle, as you struggle with being passive, as I struggle, as you struggle with being angry, as I struggle, as you struggle with being divisive, as I struggle, brothers, God is calling us to be holy, holy, holy men. Randy Stinson, great book. He, he's written several great books. Um, he's a professor up at Western. Encourage him to look you up. He's got like a ton of kids. He's adopted a bunch of kids. Beautiful story. But some of the things that he teaches his young men, his young boys, is this phrase. He teaches his young boys this. The boy goes down. The girl goes free. The boy goes down. Every time. The girl goes free. So he has his sons all the time repeat this back to him. It's like their little home, their manly mantra. The boy goes down, so the girl goes free. And he said, I'll never forget one day, uh, we were at our house. And a bunch of kids were at our house, and I was inside of the house working on some things, but I could look out the window and I could see our kids. And I saw my taller little boy go out to the house, and, and he's got a red wagon out there, and, and, and he jumps inside of the red wagon, and he starts barreling down this hill. Why? Because that's what boys do who go outside. Okay? We're climbing trees. I mean, my grandfather chopped all the lower branches off of the tree at our house because he didn't want me to climb them anymore. Meanie. All right? That's what we do. We play in the dirt. We jump in. We're, we're, I mean, I jumped off of many of things with a trash bag over my head, believing it would be a parachute, or tied cardboard to my arms, running through the fields, believing I could fly. This is what young boys do. And this is beautiful. He goes outside, he hops into his radio flyer. All of a sudden, he sees his son. He's watching this through the window. His son is barreling down this hill, just going Mach 10, just, uh. And he said, about that time, he looked out in the distance, and there was this other girl who was also playing, and she was on a tricycle, and she starts not paying attention and coming right out in front of his little boy as he's going down the thing. He said, Dr. Stinson said he, he looked out at his boy and all of a sudden he saw his son take that wagon and begin to rock it and flip himself over as he began to watch his child now going head over head, head over head, over head. Him and his wife, he yells for her. They go running outside. They pick up their little boy. They bring him in and they're trying to figure out he's covered in blood. They're trying to figure out whether or not they're having to take him to the hospital. And the first thing that comes out of his boy's mouth was, the boy goes down, daddy. And the girl goes free. What a picture of Jesus. The church does not deserve the saving she receives. But the boy goes down. The boy goes down every time. No matter what that woman has done, the boy goes down every single time time. She, he dies to self. He dies to what he wants. He dies to his rightness in order to be the sacrificial lamb for his bride, the church. And men, we are called to do that exact same thing. We will go down. So the girl goes free. Closing. Having said all of this, brothers and sisters, 
is the room at the table of salvation for angry and divisive men. Because of our sinful nature, when we read these passages, our immediate tendency is to think about others in the room. In chapter 1, what does Paul tell us? Hey, brother, you got to get rid of Hamanias and Alexander, right? They got to go. They're false teachers. They're leading us astray. They're leading our men and our women astray. They're leading our children astray. They believe things that are not found in, in the Scripture. They are religious, but they do not have a relationship with Jesus. We've got to remove them in hopes that they will repent and return. So as Paul is, is reading this, or Timothy is reading this to the church, I guarantee you within their mindset of, of hearing this, oh, we know who Paul's talking about. But who's this directed toward? All the men in the church. Is the room at the table of salvation for angry and divisive men. week. This week, because of some things going on in our lives, I was, I was unable to attend a, a monthly meeting that I go to. And I specifically hated to miss this meeting because this man doesn't know it, but he's like my spiritual grandpa. And some of you guys are going to know this name. Some of you, I, I've met him on several occasions. He's gospeled me to death, but he couldn't tell you who I am. So I'm not trying to name drop this gentleman just for the sake of name dropping him. He doesn't know me. But I love the books that he puts out. I love the things that he says. I've only heard gracious, loving, godly things from this man and about this man. But this past week at my monthly meeting I was not able to go to, my buddy sent me the recording. I've listened to it, I think, two or three times as of right now. There's a pastor named Pastor Ray Ortland. He's at Emmanuel Church in Nashville. He's all over the Gospel Coalition. Maybe some of you have some of his books and articles. They're treasures to me. He had no idea what I was going to be preaching on this Sunday. But I'm sure glad that he spoke into it. I'm not much for giving long quotes. But gentlemen... Please listen to everything that I'm about to say to you. Ray said this this week. The deal breaker in a healthy church is not human fallibility, which is sin. The deal breaker is being so perfect and so demanding and so angry that it jeopardizes the space for sinners who are trying honestly to rethink their lives. The greatest threat to the typical church is not the adulterer, but the gossip and the slanderer. The person might be outwardly blameless, but in effect lives in an orgy of conflict. I'm not going to guess in a number of our churches when we took the Lord's Supper, we turned it into an orgy. 
There might as well be an orgy going on in some of our churches. The orgy of self-gratifying controversy. Get this. There are some people who just do not feel healthy, real, and normal, and significant if they aren't generating trouble. But in a healthy church, we set a tone where any sinner walking in harmony with other sinners, all of us together can say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Here's why it matters so much. There are, in fact, two religions constantly competing for the soul of every church. That doesn't mean our doctrine statement keeps changing. Our doctrine statement is sacred, and it should be. But the reality within the church is the doctrine statement is only on paper. The reality in a church is two opposite religions constantly competing. One, the wondrous cross, a divine sacrifice, against the hideous cross of human sacrifice. If we are not sweetly subdued by the wondrous cross of Jesus, we will go looking for human scapegoat whom we can vent our own guilt and anxieties so that we don't have to face ourselves with any kind of honesty. We offload our shame and offload our historic guilt and offload all of this darkness that is within us. Human moral psychology in a fallen mind is on the radar looking for somebody. Who will be my scapegoat today? That explains a large part of Twitter right there. And rage in our country. We are all looking for sacrificial victims. I know I cannot bear my sin, so somebody's got to bear it. And it's not going to be me. You will do. You make one false move and you will qualify. And in that world, get this, please. In that world of bloodthirsty self-justification, Jesus stands up and he says, I'll be your scapegoat. I'll be it. Don't beat up my sheep. Don't beat up my creation. I'll, I'll be your scapegoat. I'll take your punch. I'll tank your anger. I'll take your divisiveness, and you know what I call it? Relationship. Whatever you think you can dish out, gentlemen, Jesus says, I, I will take before you try to raise your voice as I have done, before you try to lose your patience as I have done, as you have in this church that we're talking about in Timothy is the picture of this fight going on. And when there's a fight, what do you do? You raise your hands. And yet the Bible is telling you to put down clenched fists and open them up and open your heart in humility to the person and work of Jesus that we are gospel-centered in all things. And because of that, there is room at the salvific table for angry and divisive men of which I am the chief of sinners. What a humbling reality. 
for a man like me. That he would see the depths of my heart and calls us to the table through repentance. You know what God does to toxic, angry, divisive men? He transforms them. He transforms them into men after his own heart who love the gospel, who love their wives, who love their brothers and sisters, who love their children, who loves their church. Men like Matthew, a rotten scoundrel tax collector. A fisherman like Peter, who lies continually to his master. I will not leave. I will not leave. I will not leave. And at the first sign of, of conflict, what does he do? He is ready to cut off a man's ear. And what does he do? God changes a man like Peter. God takes a, a terrorist like Paul, makes him a church planner and a pastor. Takes a man like Augustine, who had lots of problems, lots, many unmentionable things. It makes a father, makes him a father in the church. What does God do? He saves him. And so, brothers, I come at not, not at you throwing any stones. I'm not at you to beat you up. I promise you that is not my intent this morning. My, my heartbeat this morning is lift high the person and work of Jesus. As he's calling you to himself. And as we link arms shoulder to shoulder to walk toward him, to be like him. That we learn to fight for things that we need to fight for. But we learn to relinquish control over things that really don't matter. Let's come to Jesus. Let's pray.